Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to this month's Keep the Faith message. I hope that you have made progress in your spiritual life as a result of the lessons we send to you each month. Our burden is the salvation of souls, and it is encouraging to us to hear your comments about the sermons. Please go to our website and read the latest articles and sermons. You can even download the text or audio of our messages there so that you can study them more fully. My friends, I'm so thankful for how God has worked in our lives to bring about reconciliation. He first reconciles us to Himself and our Heavenly Father, and then to those around us. This month we will conclude the story of Joseph. It is hard to imagine that this is part five already. But it has been a wonderful personal blessing to me to prepare these messages on the life of Joseph and its practical application to our experiences as children of God. I hope you've gained as much blessing listening to them as I have had in preparing them. If you want to refresh your mind on the story where we left off last time, go back and listen to the last sermon in this series. Jesus is the center of this story, even though he is not mentioned by name at all. The cross of Christ is also portrayed in the experience of Joseph, though it is never mentioned. Yet the parallels to the plan of salvation and our relationship to Jesus come through loud and clear. So before we begin, let us bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our time together. Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are for your love and providential leadings, even through pain and tragedy, to triumph in Christ. Help us to grasp it more fully. Help us to learn to depend upon you and patiently wait for you to work out the counsels of your will. May our hearts be open to your ordained tools to mold and shape us into your image so that you can be the one people see when they see us. By your grace, restore the image of Jesus in your people in these last days. Now help us as we study to see more fully your hand in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. After coming to Egypt, Jacob lived another 17 years. Jacob does not want to be buried in Egypt and asks Joseph to make sure that he is taken back to the cave where he buried Rachel, Joseph's mother. Joseph readily agrees not to bury him in Egypt. Their parting at the time of Jacob's death is so moving. You can read it in Genesis 49. Jacob has taken sick and is sitting on his bed. Joseph brings his two sons. His brothers also come to see him before he dies. Jacob blesses them and then calls all of his sons to his side and prophesies about them. Notice what he said of Judah. It's in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, 
and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This is saying that Judah would be in the lineage of Jesus. Turn to Matthew 1, verse 2, and you'll see it. Let me read it. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. The word translated Judas is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Judah. It is very interesting that a Judas was the betrayer of Joseph like Jesus was betrayed by his disciple Judas. Joseph's brother, however, has changed by the power of God, and he is restored. Do you think Judas could have been restored if he had turned from his selfishness and pride like Joseph's brother Judah? In addition to being restored by Joseph, Judah was also restored by the God of heaven and was given the privilege of being in the direct line of ancestry to the Son of God. What amazing restoration! What a powerful witness to the forgiving power of God! Judah was restored to the lineage of Jesus, the great deliverer of which Joseph is a type. When Jacob is finished with blessing his sons and prophesying about them, he pulls his feet up on his bed, closes his eyes, and gives up the ghost. Chapter 50, verse 1, opens with these words, And Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept upon him and kissed him. His farewell is reminiscent of his reunion with his father after so many years. But now Joseph has to let his father go. Have you ever let go of a loved one in death? Parting is very hard. I know because I experienced it with my mother. I knew she would not live more than a few more days when I last saw her. I wept as I left her home for the last time. I believe I'll see her again, but I know a little of the sorrow Joseph felt at the loss of his beloved father. There's a lump in your throat that's hard to swallow. Tears flow freely, and your heart feels as if it is going to break. I can imagine that Joseph felt like that. It is hard to let go of a loved one. After Jacob's death, Joseph got Pharaoh's permission to bury his father in Canaan. What an entourage! A huge procession, wending its way up the now familiar road between Egypt and Hebron, the same road that Joseph many years before had traveled in another procession as a prisoner and a slave. His heart was crushed with sorrow, but now the procession is a different kind of sorrow. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 50 tells us that there was a very great company, with chariots and horses and all the house of Joseph, his brothers and all the house of Jacob. Only their children and flocks and herds were left behind. The Canaanites have never seen such an imposing sight, an Egyptian state funeral in Canaan of all places. Important Egyptians aren't buried outside the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. But the deceased is no Egyptian. He is a humble shepherd, a Hebrew, returning to his homeland with Egyptian state honors. Imagine Joseph's thoughts as the great stone was rolled back in front of the cave of Machpelah. He must have sat quietly there a long, long time, thinking about the events of his father's life. He must have thought about how God had taught him to trust him, not vicariously through his father, 
but with his own personal walk with God. The same God of his father and his father's father would be with him and his brothers. He must have thought about his brothers and the history of their relationship and how God had worked everything out for their own good. He must have thought about the sweet restoration that had brought them all back together. The lump in his throat must have been thick as he turned and left the gravesite to return to Egypt. Slowly and with his shoulders bent, he makes his way back south. He is wearing the mourning clothes of proud Egypt, but he is humble and acts quite differently from the Egyptians. He is in his homeland. He is not an Egyptian. He is a child of the God of gods, the Mighty One of Israel. He looks upon the hills of Hebron, his childhood home, probably for the last time, the only time in nearly forty years. That night he again looks into the heavens and sees the stars, the same stars that he saw when he was a slave trudging south to Egypt for the first time. Now he is turning south again for the last time, not as a slave, but as a ruler, the prince of Egypt. As he looks in the heavens, he is reminded of God's promises and is greatly comforted that God will be with him just as he was with his fathers. He renews his faith and his covenant with God. You know, my friends, it doesn't matter who you are or how high or low your position or how strong you appear in the eyes of others. We all face times in our lives when we need comfort and encouragement. We all face times of loss and sorrow. These are times when through faith we can have Jesus close by our side. These are times when we can look at the stars and can have the confidence that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph will be with us just as he was with them. After Joseph buried his father, his brethren became concerned. They think that now that their father is dead, Joseph would take revenge on them. They were afraid to come to him themselves, and so they sent a messenger to him. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 17. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. Joseph wept when he heard this. He was no doubt disappointed that his brothers did not trust his previous forgiveness and the magnanimous symbols of his love. Though his brothers were good men, they hadn't learned the strength of faith in God that Joseph had, nor do they understand the character of Joseph. But Joseph was gracious to them. He spoke kindly to them and reminded them of God's providence. He has no interest in revenge. The scripture says in verse 19 through 21, and Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. 
Now therefore fear not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Joseph doesn't need justice. God has given him justice, both real and poetic. His dreams have been fulfilled. He is practically in charge of the greatest nation on earth. He doesn't need any further justice. His heart is pure. He has learned how to forgive. He leaves his brothers with God. He can see that God has transformed them and that they are no longer what they once were. And my friends, this is exactly what Jesus does with us. When He forgives us, He changes us from what we were into what He is. He transforms us. His work in our lives becomes obvious to all, and it makes Him sad when we bring up our past and fear that He has not really forgiven us. Joseph lived approximately another 70 years until he was 110 years old. He asks that he not be buried in Egypt, but put in a coffin until the departure of Israel for the promised land. Little did they know that it would be at least 400 years until he is finally buried, and that a terrible slavery would intervene. Why the slavery? God did not want them to get too comfortable in Egypt. He wanted his people to long for the promised land that he had promised to their fathers. It is interesting to note that Joseph's coffin was there to remind the Egyptians of what Joseph had done for them. Yet they eventually turned against Israel in the providence of God and forgot Joseph. I think it is ironic that the children of Joseph's brothers were put in bondage like Joseph. Their lives were made hard like his was. They learned what it was like to suffer unjustly. Remember the scripture that says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments? That's Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. This is symbolic, in a way, of what Joseph's family experienced. They were put into slavery for many generations after Joseph's death. But God also showed them mercy, and as they had built up a huge population among themselves, God delivered them from bondage and brought them to Canaan. The story of Joseph is an amazing story of forgiveness and Christ-likeness with types and symbols as well as personal, practical applications to our own lives. But it is also a story that reveals the principles of the great controversy, and especially does it speak to the last generation. Perhaps as you study the story yourself, you will see more examples of this than we will cover today. This month I want to challenge you to think beyond the immediate, wonderful story of Joseph and grasp the deeper significance. There is a powerful text in Scripture that speaks of those living in the last days. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. My friends, the mystery of godliness was fulfilled in Christ, when he became manifest in the flesh. 
but it is also to be fulfilled in the last generation when they are filled with the character and the glory of God through Jesus dwelling in them. They become the mystery of godliness as they live in holiness unto God. Don't you want to be part of that great movement at the end of time? The stories of the Old Testament are often illustrations of all or part of the plan of salvation or of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Each story illustrates a different aspect of how God deals with His church throughout time. But the Scriptures tell us that the stories of the Old Testament were examples unto us. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, we read, Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. History repeats itself. The principles, characteristics, and conflicts in the stories of the Old Testament have great meaning for us, because they happen to us too. Joseph was also a type of Christ manifest in the flesh, particularly in his role as a reconciler with his brethren. But there are many parallels between Joseph and Jesus, and let us look at them and also the parallels to the last generation. The great controversy between Christ and Satan with the involvement of everyone on the earth as well as the unseen angelic hosts is a theme that runs through Scripture. Many of the people in the stories of the Old Testament illustrate the characters in the great controversy. Not always in exact detail because they are fallen men, but in the positions that they hold in relation to each other and in the events that occurred. They are types of the larger conflict going on in the universe. The story of Joseph is no exception. Jacob is the head of the family. He is the father and represents our loving Heavenly Father whose interest and care for His children and His church is great. As the story unfolds, we see the squabbles and the unsavory issues going on in God's church in their day. Joseph is given two prophetic dreams. He then becomes the prophet to his brothers, who were the church of their time. They hate their prophet and want to do him harm. And isn't this what Christ was to Israel, their Messiah, their greatest prophet? Yet his church despised and hated him and did him harm. Micah 7 verse 6 says, A man's enemies are the men of his own house. The remnant church is identified in Scripture as having the spirit of prophecy. And there are many who hate God's prophets and messengers today in the same way. They mistreat them and deal with them in ways that often reflect the same characteristics that Joseph's brothers revealed in their treatment of him. It may be hard to apply these things to ourselves, but unfortunately, these were written as examples unto us. You see, my friends, it is not the world that you have to worry about sometimes, as much as those in God's church. Those that will betray you are the ones who know you, the ones who know your secrets. You can actually expect better treatment from those that aren't members of the house of faith than those with whom you worship each week. Joseph's brothers became envious of him. They became so hateful of him that they had to take their flocks and go a long way for a long time. Their father became worried about them and sent his son to see how they were doing. He sent gifts with his son for them as well. 
They persecuted Joseph, squandered the gifts, and sold him as a slave. God's church went astray too. He was worried about them, so he sent his son, Jesus, on a journey to find his lost brethren. He sent spiritual gifts, which they squandered and wasted, while persecuting him. And like Judah, Judas sold him for the price of a slave to their enemies. Do you think this kind of betrayal will happen at the end of time? I do. In fact, Jesus predicts it in Matthew 24, verse 10. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. You see, my friends, the time of trouble is going to be more trouble from fellow believers than from the world. So we'd better get used to it. You can't expect your fellow church members to protect you. Some of them will stoop to the lowest level of human dignity to make your life miserable. We need an experience like Joseph so that we will respond in Christ-like ways. Joseph's brothers ate the food their father sent, but rejected and persecuted the messenger. They lived on the benefits without being accountable to their father for their behavior. Isn't that what Israel did? They partook of the benefits of being God's church, but rejected the one that had given them those very benefits. Jesus described the rebellion of his church in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 39. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, and digged a winepress in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, Ha, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. Do you think that the same problem exists in God's church today? Do we not proclaim to work for the divine husbandman, but in reality we are doing our own thing, and when he sends us messengers of warning, we ridicule them, accuse them, and assassinate their reputations? I don't know about you, but I've seen this many times. Joseph is crucified twice in the story, first by his church, that is, by his brothers, symbolically at least, in their effort to rid themselves of his influence though they didn't actually kill him, even though they had planned to at first, they crucified him in their minds. They sent him to Egypt as a slave, thinking that they would be rid of him forever. They never thought about the principle that after every crucifixion, there is a resurrection. They could not appreciate the value of the act that they had so wickedly accomplished. Joseph's brothers despised the prophet Joseph and his message. This led them to treat him with disrespect and dishonor. When they sold him into slavery, he became dead to them for all intents and purposes. They think they got rid of him and would never see him again, nor ever hear of his dreams and prophecies again. But Joseph suffers for his brothers, just as Christ suffered for us, even though we mistreated him. Yes, it is true, our sins, 
the sins of the last generation have done to Christ what the Jews did to him when he was here on this earth. Do you remember when Christ was treated this way by his church? When Christ was crucified, didn't the Jewish leaders think that they would never see him again? They thought they were rid of him forever. Yet one day they will see him coming in the clouds of glory. Jesus himself said to them, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's Matthew 26, 64. Just before Jesus comes again, there is to be a special resurrection, which we find in Revelation 1, verse 7. Here it says that every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. This includes Herod, Caiaphas, the soldiers that drove the nails into his hands and side, the mocking crowd, all of them see the glory of Christ coming in the clouds of heaven. And when they see Jesus again, it will be too late to repent and be reconciled. They will see him in all his glory, in all his majesty and power. And when Joseph's brothers saw him, he too was seated at the right hand of power. After the redeemed have spent a thousand years in heaven, they too will be seated at the right hand of power when the wicked see them again for the first time. And secondly, Joseph was crucified by Mrs. Potiphar, who represents the secular world. She wanted revenge and to be rid of the man who had spurned her lawlessness in the name of his God. Yet the plot was also foiled. She never imagined in her wildest imaginations that Joseph would one day soar above her own husband in power and authority, nor could she appreciate the significance of what she had just done. Christ went through exactly the same kind of crucifixion on the cross. He was crucified in the hearts and minds of the Jews, his church, who orchestrated his death by the cruel hands of the Romans. Both the church and the state or the secular world were at odds with Christ and his mission. Neither could appreciate the importance of what they had done in accomplishing his mission. They were so blinded by malicious hatred or cunning politics that they could not break through the darkness to understand and appreciate the light. The light shined in darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. John 1 verse 5. Another lesson should be clear to us. When we are crucified by others, when we are mistreated, judged unjustly, maliciously villainized or cruelly characterized, we have Christ by our side just as Joseph did. We are to shine as he shone in the darkness. Even if those who have done those things to us cannot comprehend the light. He will raise us up after humbling us in the dust, just as he did for Joseph. It was as if Christ was showing Joseph and us something of the cross and his character through his own experience. Here's another parallel. Joseph and Jesus were both misunderstood and misrepresented by the very ones who should have known better. But Joseph, like Jesus, remained true and loyal under temptation, abuse, and pressure. And here's another. Joseph's character was not stained by the wickedness of godless Egypt, and neither was Christ's character stained by the wickedness of this earth. And another. 
While in Egypt, Joseph took ignominy and punishment unjustly for the good of his master, Potiphar, who symbolizes Caesar or the secular state. Likewise, Jesus took ignominy and punishment unjustly for the good name of his father from the state as well. Joseph was innocent, but was punished as a wrongdoer. So was Jesus. Both of them were matured or made perfect through suffering. Both of them strengthened their future ministry through injustice and suffering. Joseph to prime minister and prince of Egypt, and Jesus as the prince of princes and king of kings and lord of lords. Neither Joseph nor Jesus could see the future, but they trusted in the love and goodness of their God to bring them through. When Joseph was brought before Pharaoh, he made himself of no reputation. Like Christ, he always glorified the God of heaven. Both of them made decisions against their own interests, on principle. Both were silent under false accusation. Both Joseph and Jesus learned to return good for evil. Joseph tested his brethren, and Jesus tests his spiritual brethren to develop their loyalty and restore them. Both Joseph and Jesus became the Savior to their own brethren. Joseph gave his brothers princely coats as if to honor them as fellow rulers with, with him. Jesus is going to do the same thing for the redeemed. Even now we are given his princely robe of righteousness, but he plans to have us sit with him on his throne and rule with him as well. Joseph never said anything about the alienation or the trouble that his brothers had caused him. Likewise, Jesus treats us as if we had never sinned and departed from God or caused him any trouble at all. Isn't that wonderful? What assurance! It is wonderfully obvious that Joseph is a type of Christ. There are clear and heartwarming parallels that give us assurance that Christ is doing the same for us. Joseph's life is an illustration of the plan of redemption in many, many ways. Now let me draw your attention to another important point. God's prophet to the remnant has been despised and widely ignored. While there are those that openly ridicule and condemn God's end-time prophet, most simply ignore God's messages of instruction to the last generation. And this is as serious as what Joseph's brothers did to him. We cannot physically hurt the prophet, but we show just as much disrespect by ignoring and rejecting the message. Could we not crucify the prophet in our own minds today? Today's church is no different from the church in Joseph's day. We think we can get rid of the prophet by ignoring God's clear counsel. But God still holds us accountable for the light he has been so gracious to give. When Joseph's family hungered, they came to Joseph. When we are spiritually hungry, we go to Jesus. He feeds us and nourishes us as did Joseph for his family. Now let us talk about the last generation for a few more minutes. The last generation has the prophetic gift, but it is largely ignored or rejected. God also sends other messengers to the church with spiritual food and warnings and reproofs, but they are rejected for the most part. 
God's people live on the spiritual blessings that He has abundantly provided His church, but they often turn from His messengers and sometimes turn on them. God's end-time messengers must tell the truth both to the church and to the world, just like Joseph told the truth to his brothers and the chief baker. Joseph's message as Prince of Egypt was present truth for that time. It was a message for the world. It was a message of warning and a message of salvation. But it was also a message of preparation for the coming crisis. It is exactly the kind of message that God's people in the last days have to give. If God is going to preserve a people unto Himself, He first sends a message of warning so that they can take the appropriate measures to protect themselves. And in the last moments of earth's history, God now sends another warning to make the final gathering of His people and prepare them for the last crisis. You are the messenger. You are the one whom God has chosen to bring to light the preparation that needs to be made for the crisis and the time of trouble that is coming upon the world. That message includes the Sabbath message and other neglected truths such as the heavenly sanctuary. Similarly, Joseph was the one sent to explain the preparation that needed to be made for Egypt's time of trouble. Notice that the message had to do with food. The Egyptians were to store up food for themselves against the day of famine. Joseph was the one who had all the food during the time of crisis. The message in the last days is also about storing up food, spiritual food in your soul, so that in the time of spiritual famine you will not be lost. Your soul must be fortified with the truths of God's Word. Listen to this statement from Great Controversy, page 593 and 4. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test, Shall I obey God rather than men? The decisive hour is even now at hand. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Are we prepared to stand firm in defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? The people came to Joseph for food, which was present truth for that time. Here, my friends, is an interesting lesson. The last generation, like Joseph, will be the ones who have present truth, spiritual food, at the end of time, and to whom the world will come to be fed. They will have many questions when they see the chaos and the confusion and turmoil, and God's faithful remnant people will be the only ones with the answers. They will feed them spiritually, similar to how Joseph fed the multitudes physically. Jesus will guide them and use them to save much people alive, just as he did with Joseph. They are to provide the hungry with present truth, both to the world and to the church. Joseph's present truth was not heard by the church until they were surprised by the crisis. Some of God's people will hear the message beforehand, particularly those who come from the world. But those who grow up in the church generally don't respect the message as they should. They may not recognize it at all until it's too late, or by God's mercy recognize it when they are surprised by the crisis.
It is interesting that Joseph brought his brothers food, but they refused to give him any. He had his own little famine, in a way, there in the pit, while they ate the food he had brought them. They also sent him into a land of spiritual famine, but in order to be restored, God had to take Joseph's brothers through a physical famine of their own, as well as a spiritual famine of guilt. It is amazing how God brings things around full circle. The world in Joseph's day was more ready to hear and heed the warning than was the church. The church was not fully prepared to yield and humble themselves until the crisis came. Do you think that is likely to happen in the last generation? Incidentally, many things in the life of Joseph have not yet been fulfilled in God's remnant church. But they are prophetic and will come to pass. During the coming crisis, there will be a famine in the land, not for bread and water, but for the hearing of the word of God, Amos 8, verse 11. The last generation, like Joseph, will be there with spiritual food to provide from the spiritual storehouses of God for the people. The storehouses were the places where the people of Egypt brought their excess production. During the time of famine, they became dispensaries of food to nourish and preserve the people. The people would come to the storehouse to gather food for themselves and their families. Likewise, God's remnant people will be like storehouses with spiritual food to dispense to those who are spiritually hungry. So, my friends, while we are in a time of spiritual plenty, let us store up in our hearts the truths for this time so that we will have something to dispense to the people in the time of crisis. Joseph had dreams. The last generation will also dream dreams and see visions. You probably remember reading that in Joel 2, verse 28. Here it is. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Joseph was sent from his home church in Hebron into the world by the persecution of his brothers, so that the world could hear the truth and be prepared for the crisis. God often allows the last generation to be despised and rejected and betrayed by their fellow believers, so that they can scatter and reach the world with the love of God and his last message of warning. Think about it. Persecution always spreads the message. And if you are persecuted in one place, go somewhere else. You'll find ample work to do to win souls to the truth. And perhaps in our day, we suffer often at the hands of our fellow believers in God's providence so that we will not become spiritually lazy. The world doesn't realize how much they owe the preservation of God to His people. They turn on them just as the Egyptians turned on the Hebrew church and made them slaves. The same Spirit rules the world today, and when it is advantageous, they will try to enslave God's people by forcing them to obey man's laws instead of God's laws. There are some personal lessons that we can learn from Joseph as well. When you are cut down, plan on God expanding your work for the Lord. When you are cut down, don't complain. Let Him purify your character. Don't become discouraged. 
the very ones who have turned from you and rejected you in the crisis, may well come back one day for answers. Be kind to them. They're going to need you one day. God will give you a mission to them, perhaps, and great restoration can take place. If you are alienated by someone, forgive. If you are mistreated, you can hope in God. He obviously sees something in you that is worth purifying and refining, and He will raise you up. Remember, with every crucifixion there is a resurrection. But we must learn patience and learn to trust in God. We must learn to turn from evil and learn personal submission to injustice. I don't know about you, but that's a hard one for me. When you are misunderstood, learn graciousness and respect. When you are treated unkindly, learn to be kind in return. Injustice is a good lesson book, don't you think? Sometimes after testing you, God wants to surprise you and others by giving you special responsibilities, and sometimes very quickly. It may even surprise your enemies. Think about what Mrs. Pharaoh must have thought as she saw Joseph elevated to prime minister, the prince of Egypt. Joseph had gained, through his integrity, the very freedom and power that she had suggested would be his if he sinned with her. Perhaps she trembled as she thought about what she had done to Joseph. Would he now take revenge? But Joseph was not that type. He had been vindicated and had poetic justice. But what is bigger and far better, he had forgiven her, even while he was languishing in prison. Perhaps one of the most important personal lessons we can learn from the life of Joseph is that forgiveness takes away the bitterness of the heart. It takes away the envy, the hatred, and jealousy. It takes away feelings of anger, resentment, and retaliation. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. When you forgive, it heals your own soul and brings relief to sin-burdened hearts. Joseph went from the pit to Potiphar. He went from Potiphar to prison, he went from prison to palace, and he went from pauper to prince. Do you think Jesus is going to do the same for you? I believe so. I believe that Jesus is going to take you and me through hard experiences so that we can learn these lessons of faith. Faith is a principle that forgives even when you are being crucified. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't become discouraged. When your friends turn against you, don't give up. When your circumstances press you down, don't give up. When your family pressures you, don't give up. When your money runs out, don't give up. When your ministry is limited, don't give up. When your home is repossessed, don't give up. When your reputation is besmirched, don't give up. When you make mistakes, don't give up. When you get into trouble, don't give up. And when you are slapped, beaten, stripped naked, hung on a cross, or sent to prison, don't give up. When you're abused, accused, misused, don't give up. My friends, don't give up. Look at the stars. Look to Jesus. He will sustain you through the trial. 
Don't pray that you will not have trials. Pray that you will survive them spiritually and that God will honor your prayers. In the time of trouble, it is character alone that will get us through. Some may not have the time to develop the strong faith of experience in the truth and in the message, but if you are in Christ now and living by His law and are yielding to His grace and power, you will be prepared. Look at the stars, my friends. They are symbols of God's providence and His promise to bring you through whatever it takes to prepare you for heaven. Look at trials and misfortune as opportunities to grow. Look at abuse and mistreatment as the chance to forgive more deeply. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a blessing to study the life of Joseph. Help us to be like him in character. Help us to turn from our pain and bitterness and look at the stars. Help us to see beyond the challenges we face at the moment and look to Jesus to sustain and keep us in his care. And may we have compassion towards those who are persecuted and mistreated by others. May we lift up the broken. May we enlighten the benighted. May we encourage the disheartened. And keep us faithful, we pray, no matter what happens to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month. California lawmakers blame religious people for high suicide rates in the LGBT community. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry News. I'm Sabrina Peterson and I'm filling in for Pastor Mayer while he is on medical leave. Lawmakers in California have passed a resolution that singles out the state's religious communities and forces them to fully support LGBT individuals. In an astonishing bid to have people of faith conform to the pervading progressive culture, the legislators even blamed religious individuals for many of the issues faced by those in the LGBT community today, including suicide, the Federalist reports. The resolution, which recently passed through the State Assembly, reads, The legislator calls upon all Californians to embrace the individual and social benefits of family and community acceptance of LGBT people. The document unapologetically pins blame on people of faith for being contributors to the skyrocketing suicide rates among the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender community. The stigma associated with being LGBT often created by groups in society, including therapists and religious groups, has caused disproportionately high rates of suicide, attempted suicide, depression, rejection, and isolation among LGBT and questioning individuals, the bill reads. So with this assertion put forward as fact, the California legislator is effectively seeking to force religious people to agree with and support the LGBT community, even if they hold strong personal convictions that would draw them away from doing so. There is some good news, however. Because the political action is merely a resolution, it is not legally binding. It does, however, signal a serious shift towards the policing of belief systems that are held by millions of Americans. They couldn't criminalize you, but they could obliterate your reputation and your life, commented Glenn Stanton at The Federalist, noting that the resolution will grease the skids for it becoming enforceable law. In addition, to be clear, there is no solid evidence to support the idea that non-affirming religious groups are a direct cause of suicide in the LGBT community. Quite simply, anyone making the claim that family responses and religious teaching cause suicide do so absent of any bit of scientific proof, Stanton added. Just as the men of Sodom surrounded the house of Lot, so the legal system is surrounding the people of faith today. But before they, Lot and his guests, lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Genesis 19.4 Next, rich countries must start planning for a cashless future. For the past 3,000 years, when people thought of money, they thought of cash. From buying food to settling bar tabs, Day-to-day -day dealings involved creased paper or clinking bits of metal. Over the past decade, however, digital payments have taken off. Tapping your plastic on a terminal or swiping a smartphone has become normal. Now this revolution is about to turn cash into an endangered species in some rich economies. 
That will make the economy more efficient, but it also poses new problems that could hold the transition hostage. Countries are eliminating cash at various speeds, but the direction of travel is clear, and in some cases the journey is nearly complete. In Sweden, the number of retail cash transactions per person has fallen by 80% in the past 10 years. Cash accounts for just 6% of purchases by value in Norway. Britain is probably four or six years behind the Nordic countries. America is perhaps a decade behind. Outside the rich world, cash is still king, but even there its dominance is being eroded. In China, digital payments rose from 4% of all payments in 2012 to 34% in 2017. Cash is dying out because of two forces. One is demand. Younger consumers want payment systems that plug seamlessly into their digital lives. But equally important is that suppliers such as banks and tech firms in developed markets and telecom companies in emerging ones are developing fast, easy-to-use payment technologies from which they can pull data and pocket fees. There is a high cost to running the infrastructure behind the cash economy. ATMs, van-carrying notes, tellers who accept coins. Most financial firms are keen to abandon it or deter old-fashioned customers with hefty fees. In the main, the prospect of a cashless economy is excellent news. Cash is inefficient. In rich countries, minting, sorting, storing, and distributing it is estimated to cost about 0.5% of GDP. But that does not begin to capture the gains. When payments dematerialize, people and shops are less vulnerable to theft. Governments can keep closer tabs on fraud or tax evasion. Digitalization vastly expands the playground of small businesses and sole traders by enabling them to sell beyond their borders. It also creates a credit history, helping consumers borrow. Yet set against these benefits are a bundle of worries. Electronic payment systems may be vulnerable to technical failures, power blackouts, and cyber attacks. This week, Capital One, an American bank, became the latest firm to be hacked. In a cashless economy, the poor, the elderly, and country folk may be left behind. And eradicating cash, an anonymous payment method for a digital system, could let governments snoop on people's shopping habits and private titans exploit their personal data. These problems have three remedies. First, governments need to ensure that central banks' monopoly over coins and notes is not replaced by private monopolies over digital money. Rather than letting a few credit card firms have a stranglehold on the electronic pipes for digital payments, as America may yet allow, governments must ensure the payments plumbing is open to a range of digital firms which can build services on top of it. They should urge banks to offer cheap, instant bank-to-bank -bank digital transfers between deposit accounts, as in Sweden and the Netherlands. Competition should keep prices low so that the poor can afford most services, and it should also mean that if one firm stumbles, others can step in, making the system resilient. Second, governments should maintain banks' obligation to keep customer information private, so that the plumbing remains anonymous. Digital firms that use this plumbing to offer services should be free to monetize transaction data through, for example, advertising, so long as their business model is made explicit to users. Some customers will favor free services that track their purchases. Others will want to pay to be left alone. 
Last, the phase-out of cash should be gradual. For a period of 10 years, banks should be obliged to accept and distribute cash in populated areas. This will buy governments time to help the poor open bank accounts, educate the elderly, and beef up internet access in rural areas. The rush towards digital money is the result of spontaneous demand and innovation. To pocket all the rewards, governments need to prepare for the day when crumpled banknotes change hands for the last time. A cashless economy will make buying and selling very difficult for those who oppose the coming worship laws. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelation 13.17 Next, FBI wants tech to track social media for criminals and terrorists. The Federal Bureau of Investigations aims to acquire access to a social media early alerting tool that will help insiders proactively and reactively monitor how terrorist groups, foreign intelligence services, criminal organizations, and other domestic threats use networking platforms to further their illegal efforts, according to a request for a proposal amended this week. With increased use of social media platforms by subjects of current FBI investigations, and individuals that pose a threat to the United States, it is critical to obtain a service which will allow the FBI to identify relevant information from Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms in a timely fashion, the agency said in the RFP. Consequently, the FBI needs near real-time access to a full range of social media exchanges in order to obtain the most current information available in furtherance of its law enforcement and intelligence missions. Though the request was initially released on July 8th, the FBI amended it this week to extend the relevant dates. The agency's answers to vendors moved from July 25 to August 7th, and the proposal due date shifted from August 8th to August 27th. Though the original proposal listed the anticipated award date as August 30th, it could be pushed back due to these changes. Still, the proposal comes at a time when society is growing accustomed to the painful reality of the weaponization of social media outlets to cause harm. Earlier this year, a mass shooter in New Zealand opened fire at two mosques, killing 50 people and injuring many more. He posted a 74-page manifesto and images of his weapons online ahead of the attack, and live-streamed the shooting directly on Facebook Live. And the shooter who killed three people at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in California also previously posted online about an 1890 racist manifesto, which has been deemed a staple among neo-Nazis and white supremacists on extremist sites. It is an acknowledged fact that virtually every incident and subject of FBI investigative interest has a presence online, the Bureau said in the project's statement of objectives. The mission-critical exploitation of social media enables the Bureau to proactively detect, disrupt, and investigate an ever-growing diverse range of threats. The FBI ultimately wants an interactive tool that can be accessed by all headquarters division and field office personnel via web browsers and through multiple devices. Interested vendors should have the capabilities to offer the agency the ability to set filters around the specific content they see, send immediate and custom alerts and notifications around mission-relevant incidents, have broad international reach, 
and a strong language translation capability and allow for real-time geolocation-based monitoring that can be refined as events develop. And when it comes to specific persons of interest and suspects already involved in open investigations, the Bureau wants the ability to obtain their full-scope social media profiles from across the various platforms and insights into their affiliations with various groups across the World Wide Web. Items of interest in this context are social networks, user IDs, emails, IP addresses, and telephone numbers, along with likely additional accounts with similar IDs or aliases, the agency said. Surveillance was a feature of Jezebel's War on the Sons of the Prophets. In fact, every government that persecutes a sector of society has used surveillance to detect individuals from that particular sector. This FBI proposal is preparing the way for persecution against God's people. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. 1 Kings 18.4 Next, vote to legalize same-sex marriage and abortion in Northern Ireland. The British Parliament voted Tuesday to legalize same-sex marriage and abortion in Northern Ireland, a vote that will take effect only if the region's own legislature is not functional by October 21. British MPs voted 383 to 73 July 9th to add same-sex marriage as an amendment to the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Bill which is designed to keep the region running in the absence of a functioning government. The vote on an amendment liberalizing abortion provision in the region passed by a vote of 332 to 99. Both amendments were introduced by Labour MPs. Northern Ireland has its own assembly, but it has been suspended for the past two years due to a dispute between the two major governing parties. The Democratic Unionist Party, the largest party, is opposed to changing the law. Sinn Féin, another prominent party in Northern Ireland, backs a liberalization of the abortion law. British Prime Minister Theresa May has said in the past that abortion should be a devolved issue for Northern Ireland. Abortion and same-sex marriage are both legal in both the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. Elective abortion is legal in the rest of the United Kingdom up to 24 weeks, while currently it is legally permitted in Northern Ireland only if the mother's life is at risk or if there is risk of permanent serious damage to her mental or physical health. Ahead of the vote in Westminster, Archbishop Eamon Martin of Armagh said that he is deeply concerned by suggestions that amendments are being considered to the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Bill, which will hijack this bill to remove existing legal protection for unborn babies and to fast-track the legalization of abortion on demand in Northern Ireland. How tragic it is for humanity that some legislators would fast-track the ending of the lives of the most defenseless in our society. Archbishop Martin added that it is urgent to restore an executive in Northern Ireland so that the common good of all our people can be served. There is something particularly cynical, however, in taking advantage of the present political crisis to remove the right to life of the most vulnerable of our people, the unborn baby. The common good cannot be served in this way. Bishop Noel Treanor of Down and Connor urged similar action, asking July 6 that people contact their MP to register their objection to this undemocratic process. Bills to legalize abortion in cases of fatal fetal abnormality, 
rape or incest failed in the Northern Ireland Assembly in 2016. Claire McCarthy, a Right to Life UK spokesperson, said July 8th that Northern Ireland's abortion law should be a decision for the people of Northern Ireland and their elected representatives, and that it is inappropriate to bring forward abortion amendment to a bill which has nothing to do with abortion in any way. Northern Irish women have been able to procure free National Health Service abortions in England, Scotland and Wales since November 2017. In June 2018, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission challenged the region's abortion laws in the UK Supreme Court. While the Supreme Court concluded that Northern Ireland's abortion laws violated human rights law by banning abortion in cases of fatal fetal abnormality, rape and incest, it threw out the case saying it had not been brought forward by a person who had been wrongfully harmed by the law. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. Luke 17:28. Next, top Vatican diplomat calls relationship with U.S. strong and solid. Vatican Foreign Secretary Archbishop Paul Gallagher hailed the relationship between the United States and the Holy See as strong and solid on Wednesday during a visit to the nation's capital. The second highest ranking Vatican diplomat's remarks came during the opening of an exhibit at the U.S. Diplomacy Center marking the 35th anniversary of the formal establishment of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and the Vatican. U.S. Ambassador to the Vatican, Callista Gingrich, who opened the ceremony, said the relationship was one of the most consequential diplomatic partnerships in history. Gingrich described it as a bond that existed since the founding of our nation that is today a global partnership based on common values, mutual respect, and moral leadership. She outlined four major areas of shared commitment through safeguarding human rights, defending religious freedom, mediating conflict, and providing humanitarian assistance around the globe. The event and exhibit opening occurred alongside the second annual Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom, sponsored by the U.S. State Department where on Wednesday, Gingrich announced that in October, the United States and the Vatican would co-sponsor a summit on religious freedom. During his remarks, Gallagher chronicled the long history of U.S. Holy See ties dating back two centuries before a formal agreement was established under Pope John Paul II and President Ronald Reagan in 1984. Gallagher recalled that America's first president, George Washington, assured Pope Pius VI freedom in his appointment of bishops, marking the earliest engagement between the United States and the Holy See. Long before formal ties were established, Gallagher noted that U.S. presidents enjoyed regular consultation and visits with Rome. Then in March of 1984, William Wilson was named as first ambassador to the Holy See. On hand for the occasion were former U.S. ambassadors to the Vatican, Jim Nicholson and Miguel Diaz, who served under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, respectively. Current Papal Ambassador to the United States, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, and Ambassador for International Religious Freedom, former Senator Sam Brownback. Nicholson also addressed the attendees, recalling that when Washington was approached about Episcopal appointees to the United States, he remarked that religious freedom was the reason the country was founded. Should anyone doubt the effectiveness of the collaboration between the U.S. and the Vatican, Nicholson suggested that they look no further than the Soviet Union 
a nod to the partnership between Reagan and John Paul II in bringing about the collapse of communism. The Knights of Columbus, a principal partner of Crux, also sponsored the event. Supreme Knight Carl Anderson also pointed to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he told Crux was a collapse that was peaceful without widespread violence and one of the major success stories for Vatican-U.S. diplomacy. He also highlighted the restoration or emergence of democracy in Latin America, where military dictatorships were replaced by democracy, as part of the strong leadership of the two entities, along with the attention to genocide in the Middle East and the rights of minorities in that region as an area of ongoing partnership. Anderson recalled that in 1982, Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Agostino Casaroli traveled to the 100th anniversary convention of the Knights, where he and President Ronald Reagan met in private to discuss the plans for the formal establishment of diplomatic ties between the U.S. and the Holy See. The United States at its best is also a moral leader, said Anderson, and the world needs both of these moral compasses. The Holy See has a long diplomatic experience in virtually every country in the world, they bring a perspective that in many circumstances is unique, he told Crux. The U.S. Diplomacy Center, which is the nation's first museum dedicated to diplomacy, will feature the 35th anniversary exhibit marking diplomatic ties between the Vatican and the U.S. over the next year. And according to Gingrich, will host a series of ongoing discussions and events on the topic. During his conclusion, Gallagher recalled Pope Francis's visit to the United States in 2015, where he extolled the country's commitment to religious liberty as a defining principle. We are all called to be vigilant in preserving and defending that freedom, said Gallagher. Note how Supreme Knight Anderson spoke of the United States and the Vatican as being moral compasses in the world. The world will follow after the United States in support of the Vatican, eventually leading to the establishment of religious laws. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Revelation 13, verses 3, 11, and 12. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.